The promised one has come. Now, we're going to talk about what it is to have a lot of scripture that promises that Emmanuel is going to make his appearance. For us in our dispensation, that has already taken place. We have to realize, though, that for God's chosen people who had these wonderful promises in the book of Isaiah concerning what the Messiah would someday do, the multifaceted ministry of our Savior predicted in minute detail. It's amazing. The Word of God is a complete unity all the way from the first chapter of Genesis to the last chapter of the book of Revelation. It all speaks of the glories of our Savior. And so today, we're going to take a look at one section of the book of Isaiah. It's called, are you ready? The book of Emmanuel. The book of Isaiah divides nicely into several sections. The first one is the introduction to the book, including in chapter 6, the call of Isaiah to his ministry. And then in chapters 7 through 12, we have what is called the book of Emmanuel. And so that's what the context is going to be for our message today. You know, part of the problem with preaching uh, on Christmas in any text that you want to pick is that it, we have a tendency to, oh, how should we say, uh, dischronologize or take away the context of the, of the uh, dramatic aspect of the text, and we fail to set it within its a wider setting in the scripture. So just briefly, let's talk about what the uh, book of Emmanuel uh, talks about. The, the uh, proposition of this message is, this Christmas we must keep in mind that our Savior is no longer a babe in a manger. He's risen again, and he is coming someday as conquering king. And that's the wide sweep of what the book of Emmanuel in the book of Isaiah talks about. So let's go ahead and take a very brief uh, view through uh, the book of Emmanuel. It starts off in, in Isaiah 7.14 with the prediction of the virgin birth of Christ. He is going to be literally God is with us. That's his character. It's not a moniker that he was called. It is a description of his character. The only God-man who was ever born or ever will be born. And in my opinion, Isaiah 7.14 is a direct prediction of the virgin birth of Christ, fulfilled by no one else in human history. I think that's confirmed by our interpretation of Luke chapter 2 that uh, this is speaking of Christ. He came at his first advent to deal with sin, to die on Calvary's cross, to make it uh, a, a, the salvation available to anyone who would come to Christ, confess his sin, and receive him as Lord and Savior. So, here we have now uh, in chapter 7, 
excuse me, I'm getting over a cold. Uh, it seems to be going around. I hope my voice holds up. Uh, then in chapter 8, there will be a time when Emmanuel will shatter all the enemies of God. Every single one. We're still looking forward to that time. As we've seen recently in uh, world events, we've seen people who hate God's people, uh, Hamas, uh, perpetrate horrible atrocities against Israel. Someday, all that's going to get even more pronounced. We see in the scriptures overall, in the Old Testament prophets, that right at the time when the entire world is arrayed against Jerusalem and against God's people, at that point, our Savior comes back in glory as conquering king. That's what all of scripture is currently geared for. Anticipation of the second coming of Christ. To people in the world, that seems like pie-in-the-sky theology. Oh, you Christians, you've been waiting for over 2,000 years for Christ to come again, and uh, you're just setting your hope on nothing. That's what it appears to the average unsaved person in our country, in our world today. But just imagine what's going to happen when all of the nations, not just simply the Arab nations, but all the world is going to be arrayed against Israel. Christ returns in blazing glory as conquering king. He slaughters his enemies, no longer a babe in a manger, but a conquering king. In chapter 10, we see that in the short term, Isaiah predicted that that Assyria was going to be dealt with by the Lord. One particular nation that was of special concern to God's people during Isaiah's day. There were two main uh, problems in Isaiah's day. The first was what the king Ahaz faced when he faced the Pekah-Rezin alliance, an alliance between the ten northern tribes and Syria. Pekah, the king of Israel, Rezin, the the king of of Syria. And uh, they they were giving uh, God's people a lot of problems. As a matter of fact, during the invasion of, of the Assyrian king Sennacherib in 701, it looked like the Pekah-Rezin alliance was nothing in comparison to the might of the Assyrian empire. And so it is with great interest that we read in chapter 10 that Christ is going to take care of Assyria and end their threat to God's people. This is Emmanuel. Chapter 11, we we read about the amazing rule of Emmanuel, a time of incredible shalom, peace. When uh, normally predatory animals dwell with their prey and a little child can lead once vicious animals like little docile lambs or something. They will not hurt nor destroy 
in all my holy mountain, Isaiah says. And then in chapter 12, we have uh, the summary of conditions that are going to exist when this child who is born, the son who is given, reigns and rules on earth in his thousand-year reign. And here it is, chapter 12, verse 6. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. There you have the key name, or the key phrase, in the entire book of Isaiah. The Holy One of Israel. You know, oftentimes Hebrew, well, a pervasive feature of the Hebrew language is the use of a particular construction, X of Y. Okay, in this case, the X is the Holy One of Israel, or Holy One, and Y is of Israel. And so we're often met with the challenge of figuring out what the meaning of that particular relationship is. We call it a genitive relationship. And you can read grammarian after grammarian, and they struggle with this construction, the Holy One of Israel. In my opinion, this speaks of the close relationship. The, in fact, at the time when the uh, Mosaic Covenant was given, the unique relationship between God's people and the Holy One. Now, what is God's holiness? It is the incomparable perfections of his infinite character, displayed in his incredible works all throughout history. Starting with the creation, moving on towards superintending the covenant with his people, giving them his law, leading them ultimately into captivity due to their sin, restoring them from captivity under Nehemiah and Ezra. And then we lose the, the monarchy, the Davidic lineage, and it looks like all has failed. But it has not, because Isaiah tells us that there will be a root out of the stump of Jesse. A shoot will come from what looks like a tree that has been cut down right to the ground. All that's left is a stump, and yet it sprouts forth new life. Wow. All of this is found in chapters 7 through 12 of Isaiah. Remarkable predictions. So let's today center in on one particular verse, uh, well, two, two verses, uh, chapter 9, verses uh, 6 and 7. And so we're going to uh, see here that both the first advent and the second advent of Christ are clearly uh, prophesied for us. So if you would there, uh, turn with me there, please. And we're going to see, for to us a child is born, verse 6, to us a son is given. All right, now, that is what we call synonymous parallelism. The first line states a truth, and the second line 
is basically in some way synonymous with the first line. However, even with synonymous parallelism, parallelism, there can be an enhanced development of the thought. All right, so here we have the, the idea that perhaps the second line tells us more than the fact that this person was going to be human. It tells us that a son is given. Now, within the context, say, of a, of a passage like Psalm 2, we are realizing that the son is a fearsome person who is equal to Jehovah. And Psalm 2 tells us, do homage to the son, literally, kiss the son, before his wrath is kindled, but a little. This son can't be born, he has to be given. The Hebrew verb here uh, is like it, it's a present is given from one person to another. The father giving us the present of his son. And we marvel at the incarnation of Christ, God becoming man. All the characteristics of divinity in hypostatic union with a true man. How is this possible? We have no idea really how to explain it. The greatest minds who have ever lived and the, and the simplest mind who ever lived are like on the same footing here. We marvel at this miracle. We can only believe it because that's what the scripture tells us. Astounding that God would take on human flesh. He would live a perfect, sinless life. The one that none of us could live. And then, he bore our sin on the cross. Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. Wow. He bore our sin in his body on the cross. All of that is taken up with the idea here that the Son is given to us. Now, here's an odd phrase. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. What does that mean? Well, the government here is governmental dominion. All dominion is given to him. You know, we, in this day and age, we uh, can be kind of suspicious of government. Ronald Reagan used to famously say, the most fearsome words in the English language are these. Hi, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help you. <laughs> he had a way of expressing a lot of truth in a very simple statement. But this rule of Messiah, this government, this is going to be entirely different. This is going to be a government that will be perfect. It will be, as we're going to learn later in the verse, it will be in righteousness and justice. Two of the words that always go together in the prophets to describe the rule of our Savior. It's conformed 
to his perfect, eternal standard of holiness. That's what righteousness is. Justice, always doing what is fair and equitable in any situation you could name. It requires divine omniscience to do this. That's why only the rule of Christ will be what it ought to be. What a wonderful time that is going to be. Okay, so the government shall be upon his shoulder. Turn, if you would, please, to Isaiah 22.2. Here's, I think, within the book of Isaiah, an explanation of what this means. In Isaiah chapter 22, we see that there are two, two individuals, Shebna and Eliakim. And Shebna uh, becomes uh, unfaithful to his uh, stewardship. And so here we have down here uh, in verse 20, in that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father, notice that, a father to the inhabitants of, of Israel, uh, to Jerusalem and the house of Judah. What does a father do? Well, he provides for his family, and he protects his family. So, dads, you need to be providing for your family. Not simply monetarily, but spiritually. And everything your wife and your children need in terms of their uh, prosperity. Complete prosperity. It's a difficult position to be appointed to, isn't it? I remember when our first son was born, I looked at that little baby and I thought the, the, the magnitude of the responsibility all of a sudden devolved upon me with almost staggering importance. I realized, whoa, who is sufficient to raise a, a kid? I don't know what I'm doing. I'd better seek biblical wisdom. Of course, I didn't always do uh, as well as I should have, but the Lord helping me, at least our kids all love the Lord and are living, uh, you know, semi-decent lives for, for him. Uh, that's a miracle, really. It's, it's mostly what my wife did. She was the one who did most of the upbringing. But it's, it's an amazing thing. And then dads not only provide for their families, they protect them. Let's say in the middle of the night, there's a noise. I don't hear it because I don't have my hearing aids in. My wife has very acute hearing. And so she, she pokes me. She says, honey, I hear a noise. It's downstairs. Somebody's walking around down there. And I say to her, okay, fine. Get up and see what it is. No, no, it's, it's my responsibility to see what it is, okay? I'm the one who's called to protect 
my family, not somebody else. Now I have various means around the house that would probably help me. Uh, you know, here I am. I'm not going to be able to successfully wrestle with a very strong young assailant, but I have means of equalization. <laughs> we won't go into those means, but they are significant. <laughs> and this is something that I train for and something that I'm ready for, God forbid, that would ever come to that. But that's what a father is. All right, so here the Lord is making this Eliakim a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. Ah, there you have what it is to have the government placed on Messiah's shoulder. It's the key of the house of David. In the day of Isaiah, the house steward of the house of David was responsible for everything that happened in the kingdom. That key would lock, unlock and lock every single uh, door in the palace. He could access the treasury. Uh, he was in charge of everything. Everything on a day-by-day -day functioning basis so that the king didn't have to concern himself with any of those things. All right, so now we see, uh, and the key to the house of David I will put on your shoulder. And uh, he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Oh, does that sound familiar? How about the book of Revelation, where our Savior himself says, I am Omega, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. I open and no one shuts. I shut and no one opens. Complete and utter responsibility for everything. And notice, this is the key to the house of David. You know, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord made some amazing promises to David. A promise like, I will establish your throne and your kingdom forever. Oh, forever. And of course, our Savior is the fulfillment of that. The one who is no longer a baby in a manger, but who is poised in heaven today to rend the heavens and come down. The one who is poised, waiting for the time when his people are helpless and it looks like Satan is going to be successful in wiping out God's chosen people. That's not going to happen. And Christ will return in blazing glory. And Isaiah 40 says, this will be, uh, this glory will be revealed and all flesh will see it, what? Together. In other words, 
at one and the same instant, everyone in the world is going to see the glory of Christ at his second advent. That will be something that will strike terror into the hearts of his enemies. All his enemies gathered to pounce on Israel, and they'll be slaughtered. We don't like that term, do we? We don't even like the term when it comes to my pastime, which is harvesting deer. We don't like the concept that one instant there's a living, beautiful animal, and the next instant it's dead. But whether we like it or not, if you want to eat anything but vegetables, you're going to have to kill, or somebody's going to have to kill what you eat. We don't even like animal death. How much less does the prospect of millions of people worldwide instantly losing their lives because they have set themselves against, they have proudly risen up against the Holy One of Israel. And they have no time for submission to Emmanuel. That's what it means to have the government upon one's shoulder, and our Savior will do that. All right, back now to Isaiah chapter 9. Let's take a look at what this child who is born, the son who is given, what is he going to be like? Here's the answer right up front. This one is going to be incomparable in his ability to wage war. This little baby in a manger someday will manifest complete and utter rule and no one is going to resist him. And if they try, it will be the slaughter of them. This is the one we welcome into the world at Christmas. Notice what the text calls this son who is given. First of all, it calls him a wonder of a counselor. A very first, very first name. Now this word wonderful, wonderful counselor, there are basically four pairs of names. They go together, each pair goes together. And so this is some kind of counselor. He's called in, in Hebrew, miraculous. The word never refers to anyone but God himself. What God himself can do. So, for instance, in Exodus chapter 15, you don't need to turn there, but uh, that is the basic summary of all that has gone on theologically in the first 14 chapters of, of Exodus. We've seen God who has uh, miraculously delivered his people from Egyptian bondage. They have come out of Egypt. Amazing. God has brought 
the most powerful man on the face of the earth, the Egyptian Pharaoh, to his knees. And the Egyptians are calling out to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, get rid of these Israelites. Send them away. If you don't, we'll all be dead. Not just the firstborn, but we'll all be dead. Send them away. And Pharaoh, who, according to Egyptian culture, was viewed as divine, has to bow the knee to the edict of God himself. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, set my people free. And what is Pharaoh's response? Well, I don't know this one you call the Lord, and even if I did, I wouldn't set them free. Look at this amazingly valuable labor source. I'd be foolish to let them all go. Uh, they're, building, they're building everything I need them to build. Now, they, God changed Pharaoh's mind, didn't he? Through astounding things. And so Moses makes in, in Exodus chapter 15 an amazing prayer, amazing uh, psalm of praise to God for everything he has done in the uh, Exodus. We come down to verse 11, and it says that God is exalted in holiness. He is fearful in wonders, uh, fearful in praises, doing wonders. That's the same word for wonderful counselor here in Isaiah 9.6. So these are amazing, astounding miracles. God does not lack in the ability to do anything that is within his will and is consistent with his character. And his character is he will protect those he has chosen, those who know him. He will fulfill his plan. No one is able to set himself against the fulfillment of that plan. And one way or the other, it doesn't matter how miraculous it is. How about this one? Israel's gathered on the shores of the Red Sea. And here come the Egyptians. Hey, look behind them. There's no way to escape. Uh, they're on a, probably a narrow beach on the shore of the Red Sea. <clears throat> and here they come. No retreat. How are they going to get through the Red Sea? And God parts it. How did that happen? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us how that happened. But it did. And they walked across the Red Sea, the bottom of the Red Sea, not in mud, but on what? Dry ground. And when the Egyptians tried it, the army follows them, they're all drowned. That's all uh, a part of, of wonderful. Basically, it's the realm of whatever miraculous event has to take place in order to accomplish God's will. All right, he's a miraculous counselor. Now, when you hear the term counselor, what do you think of? How do we use the term? Ooh, I don't know. A lawyer? We call a lawyer a counselor. Or let's say you're having 
problems in your life and you go to visit a Christian counselor, somebody who's going to advise you about how you can get through your problems. But that's not how the Old Testament uses the term counselor. A counselor was a close advisor to the king, and what did he advise the king about? Battle strategy. This first pair of names has the idea of a miraculous, absolutely undefeatable battle strategist. Remember back um, in the in the life of David, we had uh, two main two main uh, counselors. One was named Ahithophel, and the other one was named Hushai. Well, remember when. Absalom, David's son, rebelled against his father. He sent, uh, he sent, uh, uh, well, he kept Ahithophel with him to advise him what to do next. Well, what did Ahithophel say? Look, here's the deal, Absalom. What you need to do is pick out thousands, I forget what the exact number was, 8,000, 10,000, I forget. Take uh, let me choose the best warriors I can find. We'll go after David right away before he has a chance to, you know, recoup, uh, to get his bearings, and, and let, let's, let us pursue him tonight. We'll come upon him suddenly, and all the people that are following him will scatter in utter terror. We'll kill him, and we'll bring him back to you. All right, now. David has wisely sent Hushai back to thwart the advice of Ahithophel. Ahithophel is as if somebody inquired of, of the Lord's word directly. He's never wrong, but for some reason, we know what the reason is. The reason is because God allowed a spirit within Absalom to want Hushai to weigh in on the subject. So, here's Hushai. He says, you know, your father right now is like a mother bear who's been robbed of her cubs. Oh, she's mad. How, you know, somewhere back, we don't know. It could be back in Absalom's youth, maybe he got between a, bear, a, a, a mother bear and her cubs. And it nearly cost him his life. We don't know that for sure. Could have happened. But anyway, now here is this mental picture in Absalom's mind. He's about to encounter a furious creature. And Hushai says, you know, all of David's men are mighty men. David's a mighty warrior. Give him time to settle down and then we'll, we'll marshal a force and we'll go and fight him. Don't go after him right now. He needs time to settle down. And so what, what does this counselor do? He advises Absalom, Hushai does, a stupid course of action. And that's the one that Absalom chooses. That's what a counselor was supposed to do. He was supposed to come up with 
battle strategy. So here's the first pair of names. Our Savior is a wonderful counselor in the fact that he is a miraculous battle strategist. Number two, God is a valiant warrior. Now look at this very interesting set of names here. The first pair of, of God, a mighty warrior, is the name for God. And always in the book of Isaiah, this term for God, Ale, is used only of the, of the true God. And so here we have the concept that this is not just any warrior, this is a divine warrior. So he's Ale Gabor. Here's the word that describes the best fighting per, uh, person you can imagine. David had his what? His mighty men. They distinguished themselves as being extraordinary, extraordinarily valiant warriors. But they were not divine in their capacity for wage, waging war. Our Savior will be God and man in one. And when he wages war, no one could possibly stand against him. Awesome. Yeah, completely awesome. All right, next. He is going to be father of eternity, literally. Eternal father. We've already said that the concept of father here is provider, protector of his people. And this duration of being the provider and protector of his people will be forever. Into eternity, he does this. He provides everything we need, all the way from salvation to deliverance from death as he raises believers from the dead to live forever with him. Amazing. That is the babe in the manger. He is the one we look to for all of our needs forever and ever. And then lastly, he is the Prince of Peace. And Shalom has the idea of everything as it ought to be. Peace from, between humans, from human to human. No animosity left. No uprisings, no demonstrations, no riots. No peace between man and man. Peace between God and man. Why? Because we have been redeemed by the blood of our perfect Savior. And therefore, we can think of, of Shalom as everything as it ought to be. All right, now what should we, how should we apply all of this to our lives today? Well, believers have the privilege of enjoying a personal relationship with Emmanuel now, while there's still time to be joined to him by faith, to trust him day by day, to submit to his word. And whatever the word of God says, we then trust the Lord to give us the strength to do. We humbly submit to his word. And that's really the overall theme 
of the book of Isaiah, which is the Holy One of Israel saves those who humbly trust him and judges those who proudly rebel against him. And the book of Emmanuel fully develops that overall theme of the book of Isaiah. Now is our chance to go to his word daily and to say, Lord, I want to love you. I want to know you as my Savior. I want to obey you. What a privilege that is to know the Lord and walk with him in obedience and submission, looking for him to work in the world. But what about people who don't know this son who is given? What, what of them? And of course, it's our responsibility to let people who do not know Emmanuel that the, the day of salvation is right now. Today is the acceptable time. We need to encourage them. Relinquish your proud ambition that you think you can live your life and merit eternal life. You can't because it's been provided for you already. Turn to Christ. Trust him for your salvation. Enter into a relationship with him. A relationship with Emmanuel. That is the call that goes ringing down throughout the ages and what we celebrate tomorrow in Christmas Day.